Our uh, scripture reading will be from Matthew, beginning in chapter 22, verse 35 through 40. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And in chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, you continually bless us and just pour these blessings into our heart every day in such a way that we find our, our lives not just being sustained and, and blessings flowing in terms of our, our food and where we live and, and what we eat and drink and our clothing, these kinds of things, but you bless us with joy and you bless us with peace. You help us to let go of anger and to embrace love and self-control and to be kind and gentle and to be faithful, Father, in the way we interact with each other. And all of this in ways that are beyond our own meager ability to, to be transformed. You do this, Father, in, in the greatest of, of blessings to us in that with your spirit, Father, through our, through our faith in Christ and repentance and confession that your Son is our Lord, that you are God and God is one, that you give us through all of that, Father, your spirit. Thank you for that reconciliation. Thank you, Father, for, for the way that, that you lead us in this life and help us always to be a light in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with just a simple statement, uh, one I think that you will have no problem agreeing with, and the statement is this, confusion can be a very dangerous thing. Going down the wrong direction on a road, confused with which way traffic is flowing, can be a dangerous thing. Not understanding the terminology in, in the, the, the rules or the the, the regs when it comes to, to chemicals or medicines or things like that that have toxins in them can be a very dangerous thing. can also be a danger when you're flying a big jet. A Boeing 747 Dreamlifter is the largest cargo plane in the world. It weighs itself 600,000 pounds. That's 300 tons. It is so big, and when that momentum gets moving in the air, it takes a runway of about 9,200 feet to be able to land it. Now... There is uh, a story, a true story, that took place three years ago this month involving one of these gigantic jets. This jet was trying to land at McConnell Air Force Base in Wichita, Kansas. It became confused with its, 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 the readings and, and the directions it was, be given, it was being given uh, by the tower. It ended up landing at Jabara Airport, which is just a, a mile or two away 
from McConnell Air Force Base, but that pilot became so confused that he actually tried to land that, that plane and did land it successfully at the wrong airport, but an airport with a runway 3,000 feet short of what was needed to land it. Now, that could have been a disaster. Fortunately, all of that was averted, but the pilot said he was completely confused and did not know where he was going and was lucky to be alive. I say again, confusion can be a very dangerous thing. And confusion can be a dangerous thing to a church. Churches sometimes become confused about their identity, and instead of being this light in darkness, they become the light that is being hidden under a basket. There are churches who identify with political processes and they identify with empire more than they identify with the kingdom of God. There are churches that understand themselves socially to suppose, they're supposed to function like a, a social club or a country club. There are churches that are intimidated because they confu they're confused over whose power it is that actually empowers the church to be that light in the community. There are churches who, who are intimidated by culture and they go into hiding. There are churches that become confused about their character and all they want to do with culture is, is have a fist fight. Today is an incredibly important day in the history of our church. January 2016, just 11 months ago, elders began a process to re-envision the biblical mission of the church for our church. They began that process in January. Some weeks later, the staff was invited to join the process. It involved looking at lots and lots and lots of scripture. It involved looking at the cultural trends that are going on in the city in which we presently live, San Antonio. One of the things that we all became convinced of in looking at those cultural trends in San Antonio is that culture is not getting simpler, but culture is getting more complicated and more complex. We considered the writings of different authors, our minds were exposed to the examples of how other churches tried to define the reason for their existence. And in so doing, we saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. All of this taking place over several really long Saturdays and a lot of Monday nights. And the end result would be a statement that defined who our church is and what business we ought to be about. Who we are and what we're about. And at the same time, the shepherds were really looking for a statement that was concise and easy to remember, and it could be repeatable. And it boiled down to two scriptures that we know very, very well about the importance of the kingdom of God. The first is found in Matthew chapter 22. And you know the story. Brad just read to us about this fellow that comes up to Jesus and asks him the question, if you boil it all down, when you crystallize everything that you read in the scripture, Jesus, what is the greatest and most important commandment in all of the law. Jesus doesn't hesitate. He says, love, your, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. That is the greatest commandment. A second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus is saying that when you boil it all down, it comes down to this. You love God and you love people. And then in Matthew chapter 28, he gathers all of them on a hillside. And some of the last words he says to them as he is getting ready, after the resurrection, getting ready to ascend to the right hand of God, he says to them, all authority. 
Now, you remember last week we talked about the definition of the word everything. The word everything means what? It means everything, right? And everyone means everyone. What is the definition of the word all? All. <laughs> yeah, all authority. There is no authority higher in all of the universe than the authority that has been given to Jesus. When Jesus is speaking, he's speaking as the king. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They listen up. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The word all means what? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, in those two verses, Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 28, you discover at least three dynamic characteristics of the church that Jesus died for. The first is, it's about loving God with a love that is like no other. That's what it means to love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, as they talk about it later on. That's in Deuteronomy, as you read about it in Mark. It's, it adds strength. It's everything about you. You don't love God the way that you love pecan pie. You don't love God the way that you love deviled eggs. You don't love God even the way that you love the Dallas Cowboys. All of the love that you have for God makes all of the other loves that you have in your life look shallow. When Jesus said, you know, unless you hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister and your second cousin and all of that, you're not worthy of me. Is he saying literally that you have to hate all of these people? No, what he's saying is that if, 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 you, if you really truly love God and you love the Christ the way that they are to be loved with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then that kind of love is going to make all of these other loves look like hate. You love God. First and foremost. But then Jesus says it's also about loving people in a way that is derived from the love that you have for God. It's a love that is so beautiful that when people experience it, everyday Joes and everyday Janes out in the community, when they experience that love, it's so beautiful that it brings a tear of joy to the eyes, to their eyes, to the eye of any human being, and it breaks down the walls of fear and prejudice and meanness and paranoia that are up around every human being. But then it's also about a third thing. It's about loving God and it's about loving people, but it's also about changing the world. Because that's what happens when the church gets absolutely dead on serious about the business of making disciples. When you make a disciple, you're not just asking them to change only what they think about God or about themselves or about the world. You're asking them to change every nook and cranny in that human being. It's not just their mind, but it's also their soul. And it's not just their strength, but it's also their heart. It is, it is about the changing of a human being through the gospel throughout the entire world in every nation and with every tongue. And that, when you begin to change human beings like that, Turn them into disciples of Jesus, as C.S. Lewis would call it. Turn them into many Christs. Then you're really doing something when it comes to changing the world. And so to describe the mission of our church is as follows. It's to love God and to love people and to change the world. It's simple. 
You love God. You love people. You change the world. Say it with me. It's up here on the screen. Love God. Love people. Change the world. And now let's say it as if we really mean it. We love God and we love people and we change the world. Now, I'm going to have a lot to say about this in the coming weeks and months, but I want to kind of switch gears just a little bit to talk about the kind of people. I don't want to talk about the the mission in an abstract way. I want to talk about the mission in terms of the kinds of people that make that happen. And I want to begin by uh, telling you a story that happened a lot while we were living in Brazil. when we were living in Brasilia, Brazil, we were living in the capital of the fifth largest nation in the entire world, which meant that there were a lot of State Department people there. There were a lot of diplomats and, and ambassadors from, from the United States and, and different countries that were living in Brasilia. And so when we would show up someplace uh, with uh, uh, maybe it was a party, maybe it was some kind of a birthday party or a get-together or something, and we were meeting with, with uh, Brazilians, they would notice kind of right off the bat that we were not Brazilian and, you know, we didn't look Brazilian and my accent was, you know, was sort of, you know, Midwest American at best when it came to speaking Portuguese. And so they would ask, they would ask, uh, where are you guys from? We'd say the United States. And their eyes would get real big because they were hoping that they were, they were talking to somebody that might be with uh, the State Department. Somebody, a high-level diplomat, an undersecretary. Or, if not that, maybe somebody from the DEA. And then I would say, well, I'm here as, as a missionary for the church. And you'd see it in their eyes. There'd be this glaze, and it was like, oh man, I just walked into a trap. <laughs> and they would begin to find some kind of a different way. They would not make eye contact in case I wanted to talk to church and religion with them. And they would kind of back away. Well, you know, the frustration that you feel in something like that is that you don't get a chance to explain anything. Same thing happens in our own culture, but it happens not just with guys like myself, even though it happens a lot, even in America. When you tell somebody that you're the minister for a church, they go, well, they begin to back up a little bit because a sermon's coming. It happens with you guys as well. It happens with Christians in general. The frustration of being categorized as something that we don't believe we are. And we don't get a chance to explain anything. And sometimes we get told what people think. You Christians are closed-minded. You're mean. You don't only have a bark, but you also have a bite. Or you're superstitious. I mean, come on, man. Do you really believe that there was a guy that was killed by the Romans who knew how to kill people? And then, you know and then buried him, and then three days later he came back to life again, where's the proof? You're superstitious. Or they think we're anti-science. And quite frankly, in the world that we live in, this is why we need a robust, life-changing, death-defying, eye-popping, gospel-testifying hate-conquering, people-loving, God-worshipping, Jesus-imitating, spirit-sanctifying, cross-bearing body of Christ made up of disciples of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. That's why that's needed. People who are different. Now again, the biggest issue that we face as disciples when it comes to being the church in the community is that we are tempted at times, and sometimes we just go with the flow, that we, are, that we are in our converted and transformed selves presenting a two-dimensional God. 
a God that you can bend and dog-ear the page to and put away. And when we do that, and we don't present the three-dimensional God of the Bible, that when people, when people went, ran into his helpers, his angels, they fell down in fear, let alone in his own presence, they die. When we present a two-dimensional, shallow, flat, boring, vanilla-flavored, garden-variety God, it's no wonder that the church doesn't stand a chance. And people don't meet the God that they need to meet in their life. And when we do that, friends, you know what happens to the church? Church gets mowed down. That's why Jesus talks so much about being a disciple. People who are thoroughly, 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 completely transformed and changed. That Paul's word, sanctified through his spirit, made to look holy, made to look like Jesus. John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, will say, if we say we're in him, what that means is that we must walk as he walked. In these two passages, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, what we find are the five attributes of a disciple, at least the five we're going to mention. And you'll see them up here on the screen. Worship, fellowship, outreach, ministry, and discipleship. The first one is, when you become a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, you become a person who worships the creator God of the universe. Which means that you have learned how to live with the mystery of God. Worship is one of the things that happens when you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, recognizing that He is not only the one that created you, but He is the one that sustains you. And when you believe the gospel, He is the one that is changing the world through that gospel by changing you. Disciples understand that every moment of worship is countercultural because we say the car we drive, not worth worshiping. The money we make, it's nice to have, but it's not worth worshiping. The pleasure that comes from, from sex or from any other place that gives pleasure that is pleasurable to human beings, not worth worship. Psalm 34. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. The word continually means continually. Without stopping, right? My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. And then listen to this. Oh, magnify the Lord. There are, so, there are so many ways that you can talk about worship. One of the best is found right here. Do you know what you're doing when you're worshiping God? Especially in a world like this, in a world that is trying to, to, to diminish God and to shrink God down. And you know that What they try to do is they try to take God and wash Him in hot water and bring Him down. When we are worshiping God in any kind of a culture that tries to diminish God, what it means is that we recognize God for who He is and we magnify Him. We make Him large. We make Him big. We stretch Him out. We, we make Him large in front of the eyes of people who are trying to diminish Him or at least say, I don't need that in my life. And when we magnify Him, we are showing His beauty. Let us exalt His name together. Worship is about magnifying God in the world He created, but who no longer recognizes Him. 
And believe it or not, worship is an incredibly powerful thing. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is writing about this church. They just seem to be messed up on everything. They're messed up on women. They're messed up on sex. They're messed up on, on factions and unity and all of the and, and tongues and gifts. And they're also messed up on worship. And Paul, in trying to get them to understand the power of what they do, not on Sunday mornings at 10.30 like we do, but probably on a Sunday night in Corinth when they would meet after everybody got off from work, was so powerful that it would impact people who even were not yet Christian. He says, an unbeliever enters, talking about worship, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The, the, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God with all of the other people that are worshiping God declaring that God, now this is in a culture that's basically saying, we don't need God, we're going to uh, diminish God, we're going to, to, to minimize God, we're going to make Him small. What happens is declaring that God is certainly among you. That's the way disciples of Jesus of Nazareth worship. It, it's... It's, it's, it's vivacious, and it's vibrant, and it's dynamic, and it's not about you. Now, there are some benefits from worship. You know, when you sing beautiful songs, and I stand up here, and I get, you know, Ben and I, we get the full force of the volume of you guys. We are blessed to be in the company of people who love God the way that you do and express it in song. But that's not why we come. Worship is about God. Disciples of Jesus of Nazareth are not coming to church so that they can get a high or that they can get a fix or they can be made to feel good about themselves. Quite frankly, when you worship the holy God who created the heavens and the earth and you try to rub shoulders with Him in worship, sometimes you're going to get bruised. But that's okay because you're His. Remember the sermon last week? You're His. You're His, lock, stock, and barrel. You're His forever and ever. But when you come as a disciple, you are centering God in your culture and in the culture of your own heart at the very center and the very core. And it's work. It's work. Worship is not easy. Worship is not something that, it's not entertainment. Worship is something that we sweat over and we do and we lift up our voices until there are cracks in this ceiling because of the way that we recognize God and the cross and the resurrection and the gospel and heaven's the, 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 uh, the, the, the new heavens that, that are waiting for us in the resurrection, we sing in such a way that it changes the life of the people around us. But it's also about fellowship. Disciples of Jesus recognize that loneliness is a horrendous disease. If you've ever known somebody who is lonely... This is a person that is, is struggling with life and at times finds life a little bit awkward. If you've known somebody who's been married for a really, really, really long time and then they lose that person that loves them unconditionally, remember how we talked about this last week, that when you lose somebody that loves you unconditionally, that's a huge thing in this world. And that loneliness that can overtake a person because of that loneliness that comes from the person that you slept with and ate with and worked with and raised children with and, and, and went to church with for 50, 60, 70 years, all of a sudden that person is gone. That loneliness can really warp you. That's why we fellowship. And fellowship is more than friendship. 
Fellowship is what happens when people love their neighbors who are their brothers and sisters. They share their lives and they share their blessings and they share their burdens. And John records for us some of the most incredible words that Jesus spoke in John's Gospel. These, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. Now if it left, if, if it was done at that point, we would think by the way we give our money or the way that we dress or it could be any number of ways they'll know that you're my disciple. But listen to what Jesus says. If you love one another. I loved Eric's prayer. Disciples of Jesus do not take the, 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 the issue of, of fellowship and forgiveness lightly. Paul, talking to a church in Ephesus about the issues between Gentiles and Jews, says you've got to forgive each other. And he says, you know, not just the way human beings do it, but forgive each other just as in Christ God has forgiven you. And when God has forgiven you in Christ, he has forgiven you of everything. Everything. But it's not just worship and fellowship. It's also about outreach. It's about outreach. You know, one of the questions, and we'll talk about this later on, maybe the beginning of 2017. But you have to ask yourself, if the gospel you believe in is something that you also have confidence in, is the gospel that you believe in and have put all of your, your eggs in that carton, the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, do you believe that it is such a powerful force in the world for good and for change and for blessing that as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, you're unashamed of it. Outreach is what the church does when it takes the message of the gospel into all of the world. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul reminds the church that God wants all people to be saved and saved by coming to a knowledge of the truth. There will be more to say about outreach as well in the coming weeks, but we, we need to move on. There's also ministry. Ministry is, is the idea that disciples of Jesus don't just sit around. The message that they have, the hope that they have, the promises, the blessings, all of that, the very life that they live because it's been forged through the Spirit in their life, through God's Word, through fellowship, through all of these different avenues, that is a life that cannot be contained on the couch. No pew potatoes. We get to work. There's something energizing about being a disciple of Jesus. Ministry is what takes when people love their neighbors and they love them regardless of whether or not their neighbor is a Jew or a Samaritan. One simple application is just meeting the needs of, of, of your neighbors. And so 1 John this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? You see, there's something about the love of God that just, when you realize that you, have, you are loved, not in an abstract way, but you are loved by the Creator God of the heavens and the earth, it does something to you. And it becomes the very thing that you want to, to share. And then the last thing, and then we're done, is discipleship. Disciples imitate their teacher. A, a, a disciple of Jesus imitates all of his life. 
All of it. Richard Foster, in some of the beginning words of the book, Celebration of Discipline, writes, superficiality is the curse of our age. Would you agree with that statement? That we're just not very deep. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. That was kind of a problem in the first century. Writer to the folks he calls the Hebrews says, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and to faith in God. So it's about worship, and it's about fellowship, and it's about outreach, and it's about ministry, and it's about discipleship. And what we're calling you to do this morning is to dedicate yourself to doing better and better, and growing and growing, and learning and growing more deeper in, in those five areas. And that's where we begin when it comes to changing the world. You know, if you're a baby boomer, you know the rock band, The Who. <laughs> The Who. The least known member of the quartet was the bassist, John Antwistle. 1967, you know, they were starting to make a little bit of money, but, you know, still kind of on the poor end of things. In 1967, he takes the pieces of five broken bass guitars, and he makes one complete guitar that he calls the Frankenstein bass. And he used it from 1967 for about the next 10 years through about 1977. He took these five broken guitars, and he made a guitar that he made a lot of money on playing the bass uh, for the, the band The Who for about 10 years or so, and then he retired it, ended up, it was a sunburst colored uh, bass guitar. He ruined it by painting it pink. But here's the thing. He died a couple of years ago, and here's this guitar that is, is really made trashy pieces. But he's able to kind of collect them all together and, and put them together in such a way to reformat them and to, and to wire them differently and to put them together in, in such a way that he created something that had never been seen before. So he takes these five pieces, makes one bass guitar. After his death, it goes on the, the auction block, South Peace, and that thing that he affectionately called the Frankenstein guitar sold for over $100,000. It's amazing what happens when broken pieces get put together again and made into something that nobody's ever seen. And in a lot of ways, that's what happens when the church meets its culture in all of the ways that God calls it to meet its culture. It's about being that conduit in which God is able to to gather the broken pieces of a person's life. And through the gospel, and through the spirit, and through fellowship, and through all of the different ways that God works through his church, to be able to take all of those broken pieces and to put it together in such a way that it not only functions, but it excels, and it becomes something beautiful and even priceless. That's what we do. That's what we do. We take care of each other. But we recognize that the world is a broken place, that the world is full of the thorns and the thistles of Genesis chapter 3. And that's why this morning we ask you to commit yourself to growing and becoming a much more vibrant and dynamic disciple in the way that you worship, in the way that you fellowship, 
the way that you reach out into the community as light and as, as, a, as a person who does good deeds and who knows the truth about God the Creator and, and to be involved in ministry, to not just receive ministry, but to bless somebody's life by what you do with your, your, your hands or what you do in terms of listening and to become, as, as, as the years roll on, a more beautiful representation and more and more priceless in the way that you look like the Christ as a disciple. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. If there are ways that we might minister to you this morning, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them as we stand. And as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, we worship God together. Let's stand and sing. Lord, take my life, make it yours.